Hey Revelers, this is a long one and I have been sick and so I'm going to keep this intro short. I am recording the intro on November 7th when word has come out that Biden and Harris have won. I know I'm going to sleep a lot better tonight. I um, have had a very difficult October and many, many challenges with the bookstore closing and other things. And now it looks like I have possibly, we'll find out Monday, COVID-19. So, so I'm keeping this short because I don't sound well. But if you are like me in that you realize the work is not over, you just want to party all weekend and then get down to more work, I suggest take care of yourself still. I say this from a place of a person who definitely had a hard time this past uh, four years, but especially this last month. And this one week in November has felt like a month. And you know what? Besides this podcast being there for you and I'm there for you, you know me, you can call me or text me anytime, but you know who else is there for you? The counselors at BetterHelp and that's Better H-E-L-P. Go and check out my website and read all about BetterHelp. If you use the code REVELREVEL, you'll get a discount off of your first month. And, you know, everyone is saying that they can finally breathe, they can finally relax, and they can say stuff to their kids like character matters. And I think that's all true. But now, now that you can say, whew, it's time to remember that PTSD is not a joke and we will all be needing therapy for what's been going on in this country for a long time. So please reach out, reach out to a friend, reach out to a professional such as BetterHelp. And with that, let me welcome you to a very wonderful interview with a wonderful woman, Ineta Lucosius. I think she'll really cheer you up and provide solace for the future as well as uh, insight on the immigrant experience and insight on what it is like to raise a child of color, particularly a black boy. Um, Tears were shed, so you might want to grab some tissues. Welcome to Revel Revel. This is Lauren Drabble. And today, not just on Zoom, but in person, in my house, at my quote unquote studio, is my friend Ineta Lucosius. Hi. <laughs> I don't know what to say. <laughs> it is weird to be face to face, isn't it? Yeah. Especially during COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, we haven't seen each other for four years. Four years. Yeah. Get out. Mm-hmm. So exciting to see you again. Yeah, for sure. Last time it was a coffee shop. This time it's your studio. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so, as you know, because you're a regular listener to Revel Revel, we start off with how we know each other. And we have a fun, weird story that I love that you've been thinking about. So we don't have to go, hmm, we know each other. (laughs) Thank you for doing the thought work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We met in 2011. I think it was my first year of college and I was working at a coffee shop and your friend Tony had a show at my coffee shop and you just moved to Denver, I believe. And you asked me if there were any book clubs that meet at the coffee shop. And I was like, no, but we should start one. And that's how it started. And then we started the book club and I think we had 
couple of books and then it dwindled away a little bit but still we still kept in touch all this time which is amazing yeah yeah so uh listener what she's not saying is that i just basically started talking to a random stranger <laughs> talking to the clerk the barista at the shop and uh, obviously very shy. So I was hoping to have Tony on before you and I did, but his schedule is crazy. So I have no idea why he was playing there. I don't know if it was his first time there. I, I don't know. But if if he hadn't played there and you know we hadn't been able to go and all that stuff, we never would have met. So what brought you to work there? Actually, a friend of mine was working there and she was waiting for a position to open up to let me know about it because I didn't have a job probably for the first half a year, maybe even longer when I moved to Denver for university. And yeah, and once that opened up, I got a job there right away, basically. And it was a really nice coffee shop. And then they ran out of business and yeah, and that was it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when did you move to Denver and what brought you here? I moved here in 2010 and I moved to go to college. And I used to live in Winter Park, Colorado before that. Um, that's where my family moved to in 2003 from Lithuania. And yeah, and then I was 24, I believe. 23, 24, and I decided it was time to go to school because I didn't work a lot that year. <laughs> I was traveling. I lived in New Zealand for half of that year, so my my taxes were... I, th I just didn't have a lot of reported income that year, and then I was 23, so my parents' income wasn't counting anymore. And yeah, and I was like, this is the perfect time to apply for scholarships and to get grants to go to school because I couldn't do that before. And then I applied for Metro and I mean, everybody gets into Metro. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I moved to Denver and that was a really good move. I'm glad I didn't stay in the mountains. It was becoming too small for me. Yeah, it was scary, but here I am now. So what made your family leave Lithuania in the first place? And then how they pick Winter Park? You got a twofer there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so there's also there's like three branches of the story. First part is that I wanted to move away. And when I was in, I guess, like early high school, I kept talking about how I'm going to leave Lithuania all the time. And my dream was to go to Netherlands and be an au pair, like be a nanny. Because for like Eastern European girls at the time, Lithuania was not in European Union. So we didn't have a lot of options. I guess you could work in farm fields illegally, or you could be a stripper or you could be a nanny. And I was like, okay, well, nanny probably is the best way to go. And I really enjoyed learning English. So I could use the language. And I just kept talking about it all the time. And one of my mom's friends, she had relatives, I think, or friends who lived in Chicago. And she kept talking how if you're an immigrant in European countries, you're always the immigrant. But if you move to America, which is the land of immigrants, then everybody looks at you as equal. Well, like she had kind of clearly wrong information. <laughs> and uh, and it was actually quite popular to play green card at the time. It's a lottery. And she played and my mom's other friend won the year before. And my mom didn't really want to move away. She had a pretty good job in Lithuania. But I think it was like me talking about it all the time. And 
her friends pressuring her maybe so we played the green card lottery that year and i was i think i was in 10th grade so that was probably like early 2000 2001 maybe 2002 and uh yeah and then we won and it's a really long process of you know vetting and all the different things um that was about a year and a half before we actually knew that we're actually going and we had friends in chicago and new york city and winter park colorado and we chose winter park colorado because there was a really big lithuanian community and um it just seemed like a good choice it was uh i mean it's it's a ski area so there's a lot of service jobs and it was easy for us to establish at first and we thought if we don't like it we can always move to chicago later but we did like Colorado, so we stayed. And I'm really glad because I think I would be such a different person if my adolescence was in Chicago as opposed to like a small mountain town, you know. Wow. Okay. So Winter Park, I don't know what the population is, but it's a small, yeah. small mountain town, you know, the year-round residents. When you say a big Lithuanian community, what does that mean and why? There's probably... I don't know what's going on now because I haven't lived there for a while. But when we came, I would say there was maybe about 30 families, but I could be very generous with that. But th there was a fairly decent Lithuanian community where people that I don't even know. It was probably one of the bigger immigrant communities in, in Winter Park. Yeah. Huh. Mm -hmm. And you don't know why they were all there, what brought them there? Like any immigrant community, it starts with maybe like one family ending up in a place because of some reason and then whenever their friends or relatives or somebody decides to move you know they're like oh come over here and it just kind of built up over the years we ended up there because so the my mom's friend who won the year before us her husband's friend from lithuania immigrated to america maybe i don't know like six seven years prior to them and they lived in granby colorado yeah, and they I think they ended up there because of their Polish friends, but they were one of the first Lithuanian families. And I think through them, it just kind of kept growing. And then we were like, even though I've never met those people, because by the time we arrived, they were already living somewhere else. I think they moved to Florida or something. But yeah, that's how we ended up there. It was just like people pulling each other, sort of. So they took care of each other. Yeah. I mean, it's good, I think, when you start out to have people from your own country because of language and because of that sense of belonging. But I mean, my brother and I were teenagers, so for us, it was easy, easier to adapt to, uh, to the new place and everything. And I didn't really have girls my age, especially. There were a few guys, but I didn't really make friends with any of the Lithuanian kids there. My brother had couple of boys who were his age so he became friends with them and he had a good good crew <laughs> yeah but I I didn't really feel a part of it and I didn't really want to be a part of that community very much I kind of wanted to assimilate I guess and make American friends and actually my friends ended up being a couple of Mexican girls in my school because they you know they were immigrant as well so we were we kind of banded together was Winter Park welcoming to immigrants to, you know, in general, but particularly to your Lithuanian crowd? I think so. I mean, you know, the big change that I've seen in my lifetime, like being in America for like 17 years now, was that when we arrived, 
a lot of people assumed we were Russian and it was kind of a given, you know, and even if you say, if they ask you where you're from and you say you're from Lithuania and then they're like, oh, so that's Russia. And you're like, no, <laughs> I just told you it's Lithuania. So, but I think now it's changed a lot just because it's been more time since the breakdown of Soviet Union, probably the education and maybe older people would still say that, but I don't get that as often. I just remember it being really frustrated, r frustrating to explain to people that I was not Russian and I did not speak Russian. And yeah, but besides that, I mean, it's kind of like microaggression, I guess. And it's okay to be, to not know, you know, but a lot of times I encountered people, it, they wouldn't ask a question, what's the difference between Russia and Lithuania? They would just tell you you're Russian and you're like, don't tell me where I come from and what my experience is like. I get <sighs> I, I get to tell you. Yeah. How rude. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know very little, but I knew more than them because my uncle, my mom's brother, mm -hmm. married a woman from Lithuania when I was little. So I grew up with Lithuanian cousins. And of course, I've told you that and I've mm -hmm. used you as a secret weapon. Like, how do I say this in Lithuanian <laughs> to them? And I was kind of hoping that my aunt would also be a guest, but no reply on that yet because she moved, I believe, sometime in the 70s when she was a teenager as well. Mm -hmm. And it'd be fascinating to compare your stories. But I mean, I know her parents suffered under the Soviets greatly. Mm -hmm. and so there's going to be lots of interesting stories there, you know, if she chooses to tell them. Yeah. So, I mean, I was fairly young when the Soviet Union collapsed. I was five when we got our independence. So I do remember, you know, the protests and things like that because my uncles went and I remember seeing it on TV and kind of hearing the adults talk about it. I remember standing in line for food one time, but... I mostly just know stuff that people tell me. I mean, I grew up during the, the independence period where, you know, the whole structure of government has changed and, you know, we didn't really have, for example, currency, you know, and how many times that changed. And I remember that, like, having different pieces of paper in my hand every year, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, and then just kind of that restructuring of who's in charge and what's going on. And there's, I think after every revolution, there's that period where there's that power vacuum. So, you know, there was a lot of crime and the police, the government, the mafia, the, you know, the leftovers of the Soviet structures, I guess, were kind of fighting it out. So the 90s were pretty rough, but I lived in a small town and I didn't see a lot of it. And I was also a kid. But I hear a lot of stories from just like an older cousin of mine told me what it was like to be a teenager and how violent it was and stuff like that. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, when you think about the lottery process, mm -hmm. you know, our theme with the fate, serendipity, chance, the universe not being random, but mm -hmm. coincidences and all that stuff. You know, how do you how do you view that that you, as you say, played the lottery and won? I mean, a lot of things that I experienced in my life till now, it it was one of those breaking points in my life, obviously. You know, I could have stayed in Lithuania and maybe followed those dreams to move to Netherlands. Like, who knows what my life would have been like. But I ended up here, which led me to moving to Vietnam 
because I was American citizen, so I could teach English there. And then I ended up getting pregnant there by surprise. And now I have a beautiful little boy. And that kind of brought me to where I am now. So I feel like all these little bits put me here. And I'm really happy to be where I am, even though it was so random, you know, it was like a lottery and choosing to move to Southeast Asia and things like that. And then becoming a mom too out of all of it. So I'm just really happy how it all turned out. Yeah. And who knows what would have happened if I didn't come here, you know? So, right. So, you know, I ask this a lot. What word resonates with you out of all of the sort of words in the canon that I use? Serendipity, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, what word do you feel actually means something in your story? I think the universe is the part that I connect with the most because I think there is, um, I don't know. I don't know if there is a plan for us, but I think that we still get to make choices all the time. So we're not completely just thrown at it. But I do believe that everything you go through kind of builds you up to the next step, you know, and even the difficult parts have silver lining because it teaches you something. And yeah, I mean, as long as you can get through the hard parts, knowing that it will have a meaning later on, that's, uh, that's good. That's the point of life. So what took you to Vietnam? Was it that you wanted to teach English and it happened to be there? Or was it, I want to get to Vietnam, how can I go? Or how did all that stuff happen? So again, random chances. (laughs) I met a guy from New Zealand while I was living in Winter Park. And he, he was a traveler, kind of. Well, he was starting to. That was his first trip to um, spend a winter in Winter Park. And, you know, we were both like in our early 20s. We fell in love and that was all good. And he he wanted to travel alone. And I remember kind of being a little bit heartbroken about it because I always wanted to travel. But in those days, so this is like 12, 13 years ago, and I was 20, 21 at that time. And it was kind of unthinkable for you know, a young girl or like a young woman to go travel alone. So I didn't even think it was an option. I just really wanted to meet someone to travel with. And it didn't have to be like a boyfriend or a partner. It could be a friend, but just someone who would share that passion so we could do it together. And then he went back to New Zealand and I decided to go see him the next, the year after that. And uh, we had so much fun traveling together in New Zealand. So then we decided that we'll go travel again. And we met in Thailand the year after. And while I was there, I met this British lady. She, she was there. I could tell that she was there alone. And it was just so fascinating to me because she wasn't with anybody. And I was like, what are you doing here? And <laughs> And she told me she was teaching English in Bangkok. And I did not even know that was a thing. And I was like, wow, you can do that? Like, you can get a teaching job, which I kind of wanted to be a teacher at the time. And you can live in foreign countries. And it just kind of, I planted that idea in my mind. And then, you know, life happened. I did all these things. When I went to college, one of the reasons I wanted to get a bachelor's degree was so I could move to Southeast Asia and teach English because you need a bachelor's degree for that in anything. I got my TEFL certificate while I was still in college. I was really preparing for that. And then in 2016, just 
the way my life came together, I realized that I was there with nothing holding me in Denver. Like I didn't have a lease. I didn't have a job I really cared about. I finished college. I I was with someone for a while and then we broke up. So it was just, I was just in this position to go and live my dream that I had for like almost 10 years. And I didn't want to go to Thailand because I've already been there. And I was kind of torn between China and Vietnam. And then I kind of thought that Vietnam was smaller. And I don't know, I felt like my heart was pulling me there for some reason. And now I always joke that I needed to go there to get my son Isaiah because he was waiting there for me, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and I just applied for a few jobs. I also, which is funny, like I almost disqualified myself from that dream because a lot of, a lot of the, what do you call them? like job ads and stuff like the first requirement is to be a native english speaker and i'm not so yeah and i was like well you know that sucks like i guess i will not get to do that because it's not something that i can get a degree in not something that i can like get a certification it's something you're born with or not but then i thought why am i disqualifying myself i should just let these companies tell me that like sorry we can't hire you because you're not a native speaker Even though I lived half of my life in the United States, I feel more comfortable speaking English than Lithuanian. And I wanted to be an English teacher in Lithuania when I was growing up. Uh Um, Yeah, and I got the first job that I got interviewed for. And yeah, and it was really awesome. Uh, And yeah, and then I moved to Vietnam and I went there thinking I'm going to be there for a year. But that year just flew by and then I stayed for the second year. And then I was thinking that once my work visa expires, which would have been about two and a half years, I will go somewhere else, maybe Korea or something like that. Yeah, but then I got pregnant and that kind of, you know, directed my life in a different way. And here I am now, you know, planning my next move to move to Mexico with my son now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get to the Mexico yeah. part. Okay, so you are in Vietnam mm-hmm. and you have all these plans and pregnancy is not part of the plan. So, what happens? You find out you're pregnant and then you do what? What was your next thought? I mean, as any woman in that position, you know, you're like, okay, I wasn't planning this. I was not in like a serious relationship at the time and I just took it as a challenge and a curveball that life threw at me because, to be honest, I had my whole life planned out up until I was 30. I was like, I want to finish college. I want to move to Southeast Asia, and I don't want to have kids or get married. And then I thought when I moved to Vietnam, I had the sense of freedom from my own plans and goals. So I was like, we'll see what happens. And I kind of had that whole attitude that life will give me something Will, that will direct me somewhere. So, I mean, I was making plans like, maybe I want to move to Korea. Like, every Korean person that I met was awesome. So I want to go go uh, get to know that culture, get to know that country. And so when I got pregnant, you know, it was super scary because I wasn't planning for it. But I took it as that, I guess, chance or universe throwing something at me that like, okay, well, you're going to do this now. Like, you're going to be a mom. And it will work out and you will figure it out, even though it seems like the wrong time and the wrong place. 
right now, but it wouldn't be happening if you couldn't do it and if you shouldn't do it right now. Yeah, and I was like, okay, let's just roll with it and see what happens. And I mean, that took me through kind of a windy road. And uh, and yeah, now here I am like a single mom and stuff, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And I'm glad I took that chance to become a mom at the time. So that's a big leap of faith. Mm-hmm. And that's a big leap of faith in yourself, in the Just world. Just trust the process. Yeah. <laughs> so where does that come from? Or, I mean, I don't ever think of you. I didn't think of you before as a, a woman of faith. You know, mm-hmm. but maybe I didn't know that part of you or something. Um, I mean, I wouldn't call myself a woman of faith. Maybe like a woman of enjoying life. <laughs> because... I don't know, like every, like I said earlier, everything that happens to you, it sort of happens for a reason. And you make those choices. I could have made a different choice in this situation, but I decided that it felt like the right thing to do. And I felt that no matter what happens, it will be okay and I will figure it out. And I mean, that's how it happened. And I was lucky because I had my family support and um, I wasn't all alone in the world, you know, and I, like we talked before we started about being a single mom and stuff. So I have no idea how I would do this without my family and without having my mom and her husband helping me out and supporting me right now. But I don't know, just trusting that whatever happens to you, it will be okay. And I'm not, I mean, I'm not telling everybody to just have these random children if they don't want to, but I wanted to. I always wanted to be a mom and I thought that this was not a perfect situation, not the way I planned to become a mom, but but that was the way that I was going to, I guess, become a mom. You know, it was just the, that's the situation that was meant for me. And you never thought about staying there with the father? I did. That was the original plan, but it was really difficult. I mean, he was younger than me and he was living his own life and um, making his own choices. And we were together for a while, but then it didn't work out. And last minute, I was already like seven and a half months pregnant and we broke up. So I decided that I didn't want to be there alone with the baby and decided to come back here, which was really good choice. At the time, I was like, I don't want to go back to America, but... But I needed to do that for just for the security and safety of becoming a mom, you know. And um, I did plan to raise him in Vietnam, at least for the first few years. And even when we broke up at first, I thought I will stay there and do that on my own. But then I didn't. And I don't know, it's just making these quick choices, you know, like be like, all right, we do this now. Okay, like this is good. Okay, <laughs> keep going, you know. It made sense at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad I didn't stay in Vietnam at the time because it would, once I like, I was in my house with a newborn in my hands, I was glad that I was there with my family and not in like a foreign country by myself, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine because I was a single mom in San Diego with Mm -hmm. my parents. I had moved back home with them Mm -hmm. and then they were moving from San Diego to Tennessee. And I, it feels like I thought long and hard, but it probably wasn't. It was probably a, maybe, I don't know, a week or something. I don't know, Mm -hmm. something short where I looked around at how my friends were like just graduating from college and maybe they're going to grad school or starting their careers. And San Diego was a very expensive place to live. And the only person that I could have probably 
relied upon was my ex-mother-in-law. Mm. I was like, that's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just not that it was a hostile environment, but let's just say it wasn't ideal, you know, mm. that that's your support. And that was at a city I knew in, in my home country and, you know, my home language and everything. So yeah, I would definitely have come home too. So I get you. Yeah. yeah. And people are like, oh, you left San Diego for Tennessee. And I'm like, I didn't really feel like I had a choice. I literally thought, well, how bad can it be? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been to Tennessee. <laughs> in some ways, it's wonderful. And in some ways, it's awful. So, yeah. you know, it, it's a little bit like everywhere, you mm -hmm. know, in that. But I had culture shock just going from San Diego to Tennessee. So you must have had lots of culture shock over and over and over in your life. And then you just, did you ever get I'm really used? good at it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what does that mean to be good at culture shock? I think like any emotion, you kind of get better at processing it. So you're experiencing it and you're like, okay, this is not the end of the world. Like I've been here before and these things that come up and this discomfort, I can survive it. I can get through this. And then it kind of rolls out and becomes better. I feel like... I had huge culture shock coming back here. And I honestly, like, I came back and I I delivered my baby three weeks later. So it was really fast. He was born a little early. And yeah, I was still not, like, fully adjusted to being back here. But it was just that I didn't plan on coming back here. I didn't really want to. I was almost, I think about it, like, how sort of self-righteous I was for a while. I was like, I'm never going back to the United States. You know, I don't want to live there. It sucks. And then all of a sudden, I was probably telling people that a month before I came back, you know. I was like, no, like. I'm raising my baby in Vietnam. And yeah, and the next thing I knew, I was back here in Englewood. And it was so quiet. I was so uncomfortable with the quietness of suburban life, kind of. I remember the first day I went for a walk because I came back like kind of later in the evening. So I slept sort of. And then in the morning, I went for a walk to get some fresh air and I remember just walking around and seeing all these houses and parking lots full of cars, like cars on the road. And I didn't see any people like neighbors were not like talking loudly to each other. You know, there was I was like, where is everybody? You know, there's buildings and cars, but there's no people. And I was so used to living in Hanoi, which is just full of people. You know, there's people cutting hair, washing dishes on the sidewalk, you know, and every and the neighbors are always talking and there's always sort of hustle and bustle going on. And yeah, and, and I mean, I was used to that noise. And then all of a sudden it was like piercing silence in the suburbs, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, and yeah. that, that was pre-COVID. I bet it's even quieter now. Um, actually, when the major like, yeah, the major lockdown happened, you know, and nobody like all the store, all the shops were closed. Everything was closed. It was the first time I saw my neighbors because nobody could go anywhere. And people were like jogging, riding their bikes, walking their dogs, walking with their children. And my streets became, I mean, they weren't like Vietnam full, but like Englewood full, you know. <laughs> and it was wonderful. I mean, like I like my personal bubble, so nobody would get close to you. So everybody would be across the street, but people started saying hello to each other. And all of a sudden I saw how many children live in my neighborhood. I had no idea the ethnic diversity of my neighborhood, you know. Yeah, and actually, I really enjoyed the lockdown in March and April and even May. I think it still lasted because I got to see my neighbors and I got to see who lives there. 
and I got to see that community that I was longing for since Vietnam, sort of where, you know, when I lived in my alleys in Hanoi, and even though I didn't really speak Vietnamese, I had friends, like I was friends with my neighbors, I knew a few basic words, but a lot of times it would be kind of, you know, waving your arms and making faces and you have a conversation with your neighbor. And I miss that a lot. And yeah, so I... I really like the lockdown, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so you brought up community and, mm-hmm. you know, you've listened to enough episodes to know it pretty much comes up in every episode. Yeah. And it's a big part of our lives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the lockdown has helped people realize that. And I'm wondering if that lockdown community thing that you just said mm-hmm. is what spurred you on to creating your online community, the Grow With Love. Mm-hmm. Grow With Love has been in the works for a while. I just didn't know where I was going to take it exactly when I started. But when I came back to U.S. and all of a sudden I was a single mom of like a multiracial child and I and like growing up in Lithuania with a single mom, I had a lot of, I guess, preconceived notions or like I was afraid of how people will see me. So I reached out to different communities on Facebook of single moms, especially single moms with mixed children or moms who travel and stuff like that. And I found a lot of support just by not feeling alone or feeling different because I realized that so many women had the same experience as me in like one way or another and that it wasn't... I really didn't want to feel like a victim, which I did a little bit. And I really wanted to get out of that mindset and just sort of seeing other single moms just killing it, you know, and having their own businesses online, having their own Facebook groups and stuff like that, and how they were making their lives in such an empowered way, as opposed to being like in that, you know, old victim mentality like oh like she's a single mom like for example in lithuanian language the word single is the same word as lonely or like lone or alone so when you say if i say single mom in lithuanian it's like basically like a lonely mom which is has such a negative connotation and i was like i'm not lonely like i have a child i have my mom like i have friends like i didn't feel lonely you know but it's you know it's that power of words where you're like that's how people see me maybe and kind of trying to break out of that of like it doesn't matter how other people see me what matters is how I see myself and I wanted to see myself as empowered in my story and in my circumstances yeah and that's how Grow the Love started going the direction that it started going and then I launched my women's empowerment coaching business along the way because I wanted to show other women that they don't have to feel disempowered in their lives, whatever their story is and whatever they want to do, that there's a way to to do what you want and be whoever you want. And like nobody gets to decide that for you except for you. Wow. There's a lot to unpack there. Let's (laughs) let's go back to Lithuania because you said Mm -hmm. that you are a single mom who was a child of a single mom. Mm -hmm. Me too. Mm -hmm. And when I was feel like looking down the barrel is the right expression of being a single mom. I thought, you know, God, look at these bad patterns repeating. Mm-hmm. You know, what what did my mom do that made me 
end up like this, you know, in a way. I mean, part of me was so impressed that she was able to do that. And this is, you know, in the seventies. And so I was simultaneously impressed and also sort of appalled, like, wait a minute, why is this bad pattern continuing? What What's going on here? And that was even without the baggage of the the word that you said in Lithuanian that means like alone and uh, lonely and everything. And so I'm wondering what that was like for you as a child in Lithuania growing up with that sort of umbrella of mm-hmm. you're a child of a lonely girl, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I think, okay, so there's also a lot, a lot of... Uh, branches of the story like my father was in my life like he didn't you know disappear Um, my parents just got divorced but I think it comes down to this patriarchal culture and like the role that men are taught to play like as fathers as I don't know yeah just I guess as fathers and it's almost they at least like the men of my father's generation I don't think they really knew that um you need to provide your children with like attention and emotional support and stuff like that and um so i don't blame him too much for being uh distant i guess because like he was just living out his own trauma and wounds of the culture that brought him up and the way he was not able to show up for his kids even though maybe he wanted to but he was never really taught those skills And I actually lived with my grandparents on my dad's side up until I was 11 or 12 uh, after my parents got divorced. And then I moved in with my mom. And then my mom had both of us, my brother and I, because when they got divorced, they kind of split us up. So yeah, because they thought it was fair. And I mean, we lived in the same town, so they both could see us all the time. But then it kind of ended up being that my father became very absent and I was just living with my grandparents and I wanted to live with my mom, you know, and uh, eventually I moved in with her and she, in her experience, you know, she was a lonely mom, lonely woman in that kind of sense. And there is a heaviness to that identity and judgment from people and and let me stop you there is there that same heaviness and judgment on the guy is the, no do, no no do they no. use the same word that alone lonely mm. or is it a different word let me think i don't think there's even like a notion of single dad like i don't think that even is like i mean you would use the same words i would imagine but i don't think that identity really exists yeah you know so nobody even though, you know, technically my dad was supposed to be raising me, like nobody said like, oh, he's a single dad, you know, it, yeah. it was not like that at all. Yeah. You know how when we started, uh, before we started, I said mm-hmm. about how how little has changed in some ways in 30 years, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, every day you hear some shit about, oh, how do you juggle, you know, your career mm-hmm. and motherhood? And the guy's not asked that. Yeah. You know, how do you juggle your career and your children? So it's like, God damn, it's, it's 2020 people. Yeah. You know, Ugh. anyway, mm-hmm. so. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, I mean, my father got remarried and he has another daughter from that marriage and he kind of started his own life. But definitely like the 
the pressure and the judgment and all of that. He did not experience any of it. And my mom is incredible. She she went to college in her mid-20s, I would say, like early mid-20s. So she already had two kids. I mean, she was raising one of them full-time. The other one was just showing up um, on the weekends and stuff. And she finished university while working, while raising my brother. And then she got into accounting because she actually has a degree in teaching and she never planned to be a teacher. She It was just the only part-time studies she could do in the, universe, in the university near us. And she just wanted a bachelor's degree in anything because she was like, once I have that piece of paper, it will open some doors for me. And then she, the way I remember, is like she signed up for unemployment office and they were directing people you know towards professions that were popular and accounting was one of those things that was growing and then they're like you're a woman you can do tedious things you know (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if it was like that but that's how i think why women are pushed towards accounting because it's like you know so funny i mean how many men accountants do you know and how many women bookkeeping so that's funny okay so cpas there's lots of men Mm -hmm. but that right. tedious, boring job. The regular accountants or bookkeepers for no way. No way. There's I don't know any men bookkeepers. But when I was growing up, mm-hmm. all accountants were men. And then somehow, maybe late 80s or early 90s, it's big shift. Mm. You know, then it became that, you know, the CPAs were the men and the, yeah. everybody else were women. And of course, there's plenty of women CPAs now. You mm-hmm. know, don't get me wrong. But yeah, like the the male accountants are all at at big firms mm-hmm. like you know price and yeah. waterhouse and stuff like that and there's lots of ladies all across the world who are doing stuff from their house or you mm-hmm. know their own office or whatever but yeah. yeah i don't know any lower level dudes doing that no yeah well at it's least like, <laughs> at that time and even right now like in lithuania i don't know any male accountants at all i've never even heard of this oh. I mean, I'm sure it's possible, like, if you are a man and if you want to do bookkeeping and accounting, like, nobody's going to say no, but I think it's just one of those professions, you know, like teaching, you know, when man goes into teaching, like, well, isn't that like more like a women's profession, you know, <laughs> and yeah. one of those things. But yeah, and then she, my mom just built it up, you know, from like small companies, little jobs. And right before we moved to the U.S., she was a head accountant in the company that had stores all over the country and she was making good money and you know she was like head accountant of a pretty big company and then we came to United States and she started working in housekeeping because of language and you know you start out as an immigrant and stuff like that and it was very hard for her to go from being this powerful office woman into cleaning toilets you Mm -hmm. know and that really It was hard for her. She really struggled. But, you know, she I'm proud of her because she didn't stay in that position. She signed up for courses in Denver and just QuickBooks and stuff. So she didn't need like a degree in accounting. She just needed to kind of learn some American ways of accounting, I suppose. And yes, she signed up for some courses. And then she called every accounting office in the county saying like, with her broken English saying like, can I just come and work in your office for free and show you what I can do? And then if you like it, then you can hire me. And lucky for her, she met a man who had an accounting 
firm in Winter Park and he loved her passion. He loved, you know, that like, who does that, you know? <laughs> and he hired her. He's like, no, I don't want you to come and work for free. Like, come and work as a real accountant. And I mean, she's an, she's amazing at her job. So she proved herself really quickly. And then she ended up transferring, like, one of the clients of that accounting firm had a bunch of his own businesses. So he pulled her out and hired her just to do accounting for all of his stuff and his personal accounting as well. Yeah. And then, you know, now we're like been here for like 17 years and my mom is in her early 50s right now. And she's basically retired because she has she owns three properties and she did it all by herself and with like for a while really limited English and it's just it was just her drive and her ambition and mostly just believing in herself, you know, like just being and putting herself out there as opposed to, you know, I know a lot of Lithuanian women who've been here in United States for like 20 plus years and they're still working in housekeeping and they never really got out of it, you know, and it's fine if that makes them happy. It's OK. But I mean, maybe I am the way that I am because of how driven my mom was. And she did that as like as a single mom in a foreign country. Both of her kids finished college. You know, she is a landlady of multiple places. And right now she uh, has a garden and she raises her grandkid and she makes uh, gnomes from recycled sweaters. And sell them on Etsy. That's <laughs> it's awesome. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So single moms rock. Well, yeah. I am happy to put her Etsy store in the show notes. Yes. You know, I've only got to meet your mom once. So I thought she was very cool and very she is cool. bubbly and mm -hmm. awesome. And I just, now I want to interview her. But, um, <laughs> you know, resilience is really sort of the word that's been coming to me through your story, you know, through just saying, all right, now I got to figure this out and I can do that. And look at how she just figured stuff out and made stuff happen. So mm -hmm. resilience is obviously important for everybody, but it's hugely important for a person who wants to do empowerment coaching. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what that means to you to try to teach someone how to be resilient. Mm -hmm. So to me, resilience is, you know, like you just said, kind of a situation is thrown at you and having that faith in yourself that you can figure it out. And you don't have to know all the answers and all the steps right away as long as you know the next one or two steps and know and having that faith that it will work out somehow you know and you don't have to i think that a lot of times people are afraid to take these leaps of faith or these chances because they want to know every single step and every how everything will work out but it's impossible to know all those things you know and when i do coaching and i start i love talking to people about their goals and being like okay like in an ideal world you know money doesn't matter things don't matter like what do you want to do and it's amazing how everybody's dreams are so unique and nobody shares the same one, you know? And that's just kind of proves to me that if you have that dream, like it's meant for you so you can get there. And as long as you sort of set your mind like, all right, like I want to own a bookstore in, I don't know, East Coast, whatever, like you can get really specific and you don't have to know how you're going to get there. All you have to be, all you have to know is like, I'm going to own a bookstore in the East Coast. Like, that's it. Like, that's written 
that is decided. Like I don't have to doubt it anymore because it's meant for me. It's what, like I have this idea and this dream because it's for me, you know? And then you start going like step by step. And I think to be resilient is to trust the process and trust yourself that you don't have to control everything. You don't have to know everything and it will just work out, you know, and having that optimism too. So when you found yourself, you know, pregnant and moving back mm-hmm. with your mom, mm-hmm. were you already thinking about being a life coach or how did that come about? All I knew was that I wanted to start a feminist revolution, but I didn't really know how I'm going to do that. I just knew that I believe in women and I believe in women's intelligence and our ideas and our power that's missing from the balance of the world and um, the kind of my interest and the kind of person that I am. I love to inspire people and support people. I love being people's fan, you know, be like, you can do it. So (laughs) for my friends and stuff. And I think I... I had the idea for my Facebook group that I wanted to inspire women to do what they want to do because the world needs more of that. I think that's how we start shifting things right now is for women to stop playing small and kind of downplaying their skills and their dreams. Yeah. And then I just started once I had the baby, I was like, I'm not going back to work. You know, I'm not going to pay somebody to raise my kid. So I wanted to make my own business and and kind of did a lot of soul searching and being like, okay, what I'm good at, what do I want to do? What am I passionate about? What can be done online? Uh, what are other people doing? And and it all it kind of brought me to these coaching circles and everything. And I was like, this is literally perfect for me. I was like, I have no idea why I did not think of this earlier, you know, but then again, it's just, it wasn't the time maybe. And I needed right. to be introduced to that idea of coaching and that it's something that people pay money for and that's something that I would be able to do. And probably like five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to do it because I didn't have that inner strength yet. I needed to build it up and fill up my own cup. And now I'm in this position where I'm like, okay, like I'm standing strong. I can start pulling others. So, and it's just kind of all these little random steps that brought me here, you know, and just being open to those ideas too, you know. And that, as you know, comes up all the time too about being open, Mm -hmm. being open to meeting people or an idea or, you know, what the universe is going to bring you or whatever. And um, I imagine that through all of these steps and your soul searching and everything that you had some books or... Mm-hmm. authors or whatever that came to you at the right time sure. to teach you stuff. And I bet you've been able to say, hey, you should read this, you know, to your clients. So can you tell us what those were? Okay. So the first book that really uh, shifted my whole perspective and helped me believe in my own power was Jen Sincero's. I think that's how you say her last name. Uh, You're a badass. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I read that about five years ago, or I guess I listened to the audiobook, and it just, I, I think it validated a lot of things that I sort of wanted to know, you know, that I had, 
like that my individuality and my goals and my dreams had a purpose. And um, yeah, so that book just completely shifted my perspective. And I got it at the most perfect time of my life because I was just um, I was just out of a pretty bad relationship that kind of kind of destroyed me in a way, like really took me down out of after that. I was like, I don't know who I am. Like, I don't know what I like anymore. And I don't know how I'm going to where I'm going to go from here. And it was almost like a clean slate to start with, you know, and I was like, okay, well, I like this and I care about this. And it was really nice to it was like a perfect opportunity to get rid of all the things that I learned about myself from other people, you know, of like who I was and what my ideas meant. And yeah, and around that time, I got that. I don't even know how that book came to me. Like, I don't know how I heard about it. I think it was, I think I just like bought an audiobook subscription. And I just really liked that it had the word badass in it. So I thought it won't be like one of those really lame self-help books. And, and it wasn't, <laughs> you know, and she talks about god in it as well and i think like me kind of being an atheist for a really long time you know was like ew like i don't want to talk about it you know and yeah and learning to have faith in things and in yourself and the process of things and the fact that she was like in a punk band at some point and i was like okay like all of this self-helpy stuff is not for like depressed boring housewives in the <laughs> suburbs you know it's um yeah, it's for everybody, like everybody can get empowered with that messaging. And it's just the way the way she was talking about it, like probably another woman would read that book and she'd be like, okay, she's too much. But then she would pick up Louise Hay and she would connect to that messaging. So whenever I was like trying to decide on my coaching and how I want to take it, and I was like, a lot of people already say those things that I want to say, but the way I'm going to say it is going to connect to specific people that maybe they don't hear it from somebody else, even though we're all saying the same thing. Right, because you're mm -hmm. not saying it the same way. Yeah. And you cannot underestimate, doesn't this feel like the right word, but it's mm -hmm. one thing I got, um, <laughs> that it's not so much what is said, but when it's said. Yeah, and if they're, the timing. And the timing if they're receptive. Mm -hmm. so that's why you got to say the same thing like a million times because mm -hmm. that million and one then they're going to be ready or whatever to go yeah. oh yeah yeah and even when I make my you know my posts and stuff in my group or on my social media and sometimes you get that feeling like oh I'm repeating myself you know people are getting tired of the same thing I'm saying but then I realized that a lot of people don't read it every single time and you know if I write you know, a couple of paragraphs and everybody who's going to read it, they're going to pick out a different part of it that connects with them at that time, because we're all on a different path on a different journey. So I can recommend a book to someone and they're just not ready for it, you know, but they have like, they have to be open to receive that message, wherever it's going to come from to them. And it could be, I don't know, it could be like an old Oprah video, you know, and all of a sudden, you may have heard that Oprah say one thing like 20 times before. And then that day, your brain is just open to receive that message. And it like shifts your whole perspective, you know. Right. Or yeah. they're tired of Oprah. But so they've tuned her out. 
Yeah. But you say the same thing. And because it's right. you, mm-hmm. they go, oh, wait, I know her. I yeah. trust her. Mm-hmm. I don't trust Oprah. I trust Vanetta. <laughs> who doesn't trust Oprah? <laughs> oh, my God. There's a lot of people who don't trust Oprah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, you know, what you were saying about people don't want to hear it or they've heard it too much for you or whatever. Mm-hmm. But have you heard the statistic that you have to hear 10 good things to counteract one bad thing? No. Yeah. And I've known that statistic for a long time. Hopefully that's changed Mm -hmm. because it's got to be about 20, 30 years ago Mm -hmm. that I learned that. So don't ever feel. Do humans change? Yeah. (laughs) But don't ever feel like, oh, I'm being too repetitive Mm -hmm. because you have to do, say, Mm -hmm. 10 good things to get that negative one gone because everyone just focuses on the negative, you know? So. Yeah. So you said you had a bunch of books. What else? Yeah, nothing like, what did I read in my life? I mean, I kind of got into Eckhart Tolle a little bit, went through like a quick phase of that. I actually spend a lot of time on YouTube listening to a lot of different women talk about life and empowerment and things like that. And recently, one book that I want to bring up, I mean, Untamed, Glennon Doyle, I'm bit up, but I'm reading it now. So it's not like something that was really mind shifting for me. And honestly, that book, I don't think that she introduced any new ideas to me because I already knew everything she was saying. I'm just so glad that she said it. And the fact that it's so popular. So that means that it's resonating with so many women, which makes me so hopeful. Because for me, like, okay, here I am just this... uh regular woman, you know, sitting in Inglewood, and I have these ideas, but nobody really knows them. But knowing that someone like Glennon Doyle is saying the same things I'm already thinking, and women are connecting to that, it makes me really happy. But the book that was really transformative for me recently was Regina Thomas Howard, Pussy, A Reclamation. Hmm. It was, yeah, it... I hope that I can say that word. Oh, you can yeah. say anything. You can say anything on here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, she has like a whole bit of like why she chose that word as opposed to all the other words that she mm-hmm. could describe. But she talks about feminine power and kind of how women have been, you know, we're taught to like serve others, to abandon ourselves. So we kind of abandoned our pleasure. And I mean, it is in the sexual way, but also in just in the life way, you know, how... Like what makes you happy. Yeah, what makes you happy exactly? What makes you like turned on to life, you know, and kind of like when do you feel alive and that you're like empowered and turned on? Like she uses that word all the time and and how to adore yourself and how to like connect to your femininity, you know, and connect to your pussy, like basically. And it was very powerful book. She has like a school of womanly arts and she is a famous coach and she's been on a lot of tv shows and everything and it just the way she explains feminine energy was quite like it was validating but it was also revolutionary as well like for example one thing that i really took away from that book right now like the part that i needed to hear in this moment of my life was just feeling and feeling deep and feeling hard and how you know in this like patriarchal culture emotions are kind of looked down upon you know you're supposed to kind of be closed off not feel not show emotions and women are like hysterical or too emotional or like 
why is she freaking out about this and kind of that feminine is supposed to feel and one of the problems is that we don't feel that's why there's so many problems in the world because we look away from other people's suffering because we don't want to feel uncomfortable yeah. you know and we can be like oh like i don't want to read this article i don't want to hear about that problem because first of all you have the privilege to look away from the problem but second of all we don't know how to feel uncomfortable you know and how to feel angry and how to feel disappointed and frustrated and um how to almost like how to feel that empathy for somebody else's suffering and if we bring up the feminine power then we start feeling those feelings where we see somebody where we have the empathy for somebody else's suffering and be like it doesn't directly affect me but when i hear about it it makes me feel uncomfortable it makes me want to look away it makes me feel you know i don't know like when i read some articles about you know, current events and, and politics and stuff like that, you know, like my head starts hurting, like I get this heat of anger. And I think that we're kind of taught to turn away from that and to be like, well, take some Prozac or take some Advil or like take a nap and like turn off that anger where in fact, like we have to feel that grief and the frustration and like let it come out and let it become action and become fuel changing the world basically, you know. Yeah, because yeah. you got to get fired up. Mm -hmm. and... and that's like a woman thing, you know, and yeah. it's just I think that at least like in my experience, you know, I was very sensitive and empathetic, idealistic teenager and stuff. And I was always told to ignore it, like ignore other people's pain because you can't do anything about it because it's just the way it is. And it was so hard to accept it for me. But I was like, OK, well, there's something wrong with me because I feel so hard. But now I'm realizing that my feeling so hard is my superpower and it's actually the fuel that can drive change and uh, make it better for people, you know. And um, yeah, so that's like the message that I really like started incorporating in my coaching of just feeling the difficult emotions, you know, and don't get a glass of wine or, you know, to like numb it down. Don't get, I mean... I don't want to say I'm, I've never been on antidepressants or something like that, but I mean, I'm sure it helps some people, but sometimes you need to go through the grief and through the anger to make your life better and then somebody else's life better too, you know? Well, right. Well, how can you be resilient if you can't feel anything? Right. Yeah. It yeah, just doesn't and, make sense. Mm-hmm. So this is going to sound cheesy, mm -hmm. but I was thinking about how, okay, I don't remember what guest number you are. I think 19, 20, something like that, mm -hmm. right? And I'm like your mom's age. I'm 51. She's 50-something. 50 53, I think. Right. Yeah. So it's a little weird. But I also feel like, I guess, because now that I realize that I'm your mom's age, I can say this. You, know? <laughs> you are the youngest person to be on the podcast what? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you're the only one with a child under 15, mm -hmm. everyone else is, you know, my age or, you know, 60s to like late 60s, you know, like mm -hmm. 
the the person I just published today, Phil Factor, he's a great grandfather who's, you know, he's not sitting around just watching the kids. He's running for city council, you know, so I'm not saying that his life is over, but there's a big difference between his life and your life. And you are... I'm still on the come up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're the future. And you are making me very hopeful about this goddamn election and uh-huh. just life in general. And, you know, I've honestly been worried for you in some ways. You know, the single mom, single mom with a mixed race child. And we know what it's like for particularly black men in this country. And so it's a little nail biting. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, oh, so... Part of me worries about you, but then the other part of me is like, God, there's nothing to worry about. You are so <laughs> awesome and ready and on fire and the person to handle this stuff. I'm like, now I want to clone you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I know it's a little cheesy, but if you could tell us, you know, what what makes you so optimistic about life, about raising, you know, a, a boy in this culture. And all that stuff, you know, and, and we haven't really talked about Isaiah at all, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't even know why you named him that or anything. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to shut up and let you go blah, 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 brag <laughs> about your child. <laughs> oh my God. He's the best. But he is the future. Yeah. yeah. And he has such powerful energy around him. He has such a <laughs> wise face for a baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, you know, just like how... He was even how he even came to existence is amazing to me. You know, his his father is from South Africa. He was born in I want to say 91. So it was right around like the end of apartheid and all of that. And the way he grew up and like the way his childhood was. And when I said like me growing up in like 90s Lithuania was you know, there are no options for girls like me to travel. And for him was the same, you know, like he was growing up in a township and, you know, not a lot of people. And still like to this day, you know, when I hear about South Africa, there's still a lot of racism and these structural challenges and stuff like that. But we both were very similar. We're both Aquariuses, like our birthdays is one day apart. And we're both stubborn and we got to Vietnam, you know, (laughs) even though we were raised in cultures that told us that will never happen, you know. And I mean, there's like outside forces of just the world changing and, you know, options and opportunities opening up. And for me, it was like moving to United States, like definitely made it easier. But for him, one of the reasons why I was attracted to him when I met him was because he always found a way to make his situation better, you know, and he like studied abroad and he traveled a lot and he found these ways to to live his dreams, even though his culture told him that he can't do that. And I think that a boy being born out of these kind of parents is, you know, he will he's here for a reason. And I mean, I am his mom. And you know, every mom wants to be like, my kid will do great things. But I really believe that he was meant to be born out of me and his father and like in this complicated situation in Vietnam, kind of United States, like he will grow up who knows where because I don't want him growing up here. I don't want him getting the message of what it means to be a black boy and black man in America. I want to 
it's weird, like I want to protect him from that. But when I talk to my black friends or someone, they, I remember like somebody telling me like, you can't protect him from racism. And it was like a really hard truth for me to accept that I will have to like he will experience that, you know, like no matter where we live and how sheltered, which I don't want to keep him sheltered, I want him to experience life, but he will be told that he, you know, is less than somebody else because of the color of his skin. And like me being white, it's really hard to accept that, but I'm kind of trying to think of it like if I was raising a girl and like how would I counteract the sexism, you know, and like teach her that, well, that's how some people are, but, like, how do you stand up to that? And this is, like, really emotional. Like, I don't even <laughs> don't even know where to go with this. But I think that, you know, with, like, mixed children, it's weird because, for example, you know, me and his father, we had few arguments, like, especially after, right after, you know, George Floyd's murder and stuff and we're both emotional in that moment and I am I'm wanting to you know burn down buildings because like I don't want my kid to grow up in this kind of society in this kind of world and I don't want other kids that look like him grow up like that and it upsets me that there are people that already grew up with that for so long you know and they still deal with that and like how do I change it whereas his father kind of is less optimistic about it you know so he's like well that's just the way it's always been and you have to teach him how to navigate this like racist white supremacist culture because he needs to protect himself but then I come in with my white privilege and I'm like how am I gonna tell my kid you know that he needs to be in a specific place because of the color of his skin like I don't know how to say that to him and I'm doing a lot of soul searching. How am I going to go about it? He's still young, you know, but I definitely feel it already. You know, I'm kind of on the other team now. You know, I left that bubble of white supremacy a little bit where it's weird how some people treat him and me on the playground. And and I know that I'm seeing like 5% of it, you know, and initially, you know, in when was it June? when when George Floyd happened and you know for like a week I couldn't eat I couldn't sleep every time I looked at my child I wanted to cry I wanted to hold him close because I was like oh my god he can be taken away from me and and then I realized that I was feeling like such a small part of what black mothers feel all the time and then he will still have the privilege of growing up in the white family but you know, we always talk in the house, like, we can be colorblind in the house all we want. But the second he leaves that door, like, the world is not colorblind. And then he will carry that identity of a black boy and then a black man. And he's he's going to be tall and he's going to be intimidating to some people. And then, and thinking that he could be, you know, playing with his friends in the park. And then some sort of women feels threatened by him, you know. And he and like and he doesn't have that um, benefit of a doubt that he's just a boy, you know, that he's danger, and um, it's really scary. And for me, it's like, how how am I gonna protect him? You know what I mean? So you know, start a revolution, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, and try to change this culture and um, 
and I don't know how because it's uh, it's so ingrained and how many people don't even see it and how many people argue against it. They're like, no, there's no racism, you know, and, and it's, it's heartbreaking because you're like, why are you denying my kids humanity, you know? And, uh, and now it's personal. Like before I was passionate about these things just because I just care about human rights but now it's my own kid's life and and then I think about all the other parents who have to worry about their children in this in this uh culture I guess in this like political structure and stuff like that yeah so you do have some friends who are kind of in the same boat raising Mm -hmm. um, uh you know a child who's not of their own you know, race and ethnicity and stuff. And are Mm -hmm. they helpful? Yeah, I mean, we definitely have it. It's weird because, you know, when you're like a black mother of black children, like you, you know what racism feels like because you experience it towards yourself. But we don't know. So we don't know how to teach it to our children and how to protect them from it, I guess. And you never really felt any racism as an immigrant? I mean, there would be like more xenophobia, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it wasn't because of the color of my skin. It was because of my accent <laughs> or, or culture, I guess. But I mean, I don't, I'm not afraid that I'm going to die because I'm Lithuanian, you know? You know, the worst thing that can happen is like somebody can be really mean to me or not give me a job, but, but that's about it. Yeah. But I don't have to, like if I get pulled over, the worst thing that can happen is like I get a ticket, you know? And my biggest fear is like, mm, can I get out of the ticket? You know, I don't... You know, when I talk to my black friends and stuff, like I, and knowing that they get pulled over and then they're like, I hope I survived this, you know? Mm-hmm. And and it's so upsetting, like, well, what is this North Korea, you know, that an American can be pulled over and be scared for their life yeah. for like a traffic stop? Yeah. I or, don't know. you know, for going to the playground and having a toy. Yeah. 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 yeah it's ridiculous. You know? And thinking that, you know, like some one of my friends was telling me, is like, yeah, like he can be playing with Nerf guns in the park, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, thank you for telling me that, you know, because yeah. I mean, at this point, there's enough information for white people to educate themselves about the black experience. But still, you know, I don't know all the little nuances of what's it like to carry yourself as a black person in America, you know, and how to protect yourself from the institutions not even not even just a mean neighbor who you know it's just like some racist guy sitting on his porch you know those are I guess like inconvenient and unpleasant but knowing that the like the, the justice system of this country is set against my kid mm-hmm. you know yeah it's an yeah. injustice system for sure yeah mm-hmm. yeah so books yeah um, <laughs> you see that big fat one right there have you read Stamped from the beginning? No. Mm-mm. That's like my freaking Bible, so I can't loan it to you. <laughs> yeah. But it's powerful. Mm-hmm. So you should grab a copy of that from the library because that paperback is like 21 bucks. So. Mm-hmm. so there's that. There's a ton of great books written either by the kids or the moms mm-hmm. you know, who raise kids of different cultures, different mm-hmm. colors and stuff. Um, I've got a book in my store right now that I still haven't even looked at called Motherhood So White. And the cover is just like this you know, white looking kind mm-hmm. of shadowy figure, mother mm-hmm. holding black baby. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm like, I got to pick that up. And I just recorded the other day a book, I'm sorry, a podcast 
and I meant to tell the person about this book and then it just oh, never came up. Have you, or your, we'll just call your ex, mm-hmm. read um, Trevor Noah's book, Born a Crime? Yeah, well, I started listening to it. I, oh, I almost finished it. And it was really interesting peek into, you know, Isaiah's dad's childhood because he's also Cosa, like, like Trevor Noah. And, but then he, and I told him, I was like, hey, you should listen to it. You know, it's really fun. It's really cool. And he started listening to it. And he wasn't a fan, really? even though he likes Trevor Noah. Like we used to watch him a lot together. I mean, like so, Trevor Noah is like the pride of South Africa at this point right. for a lot of people. But uh, for him, it was just more like, it's just one kid's experience, you know? I mean, it is, it is a South African child story, but it's just one story. You know, his childhood was different. Interesting. Mm-hmm. But, you know... He was what? almost, like, annoyed a little bit. <laughs> and I was like, what? It's so funny. Just listen to it. Like, for me, it was just like a coming-of-age story, you yeah. know? Like, it could, anybody can connect to it. Right. Kind of, yeah. No, I and, loved it. And Me too, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I think that everyone should read it. But what happens when you're someone like him mm-hmm. is that he becomes the spokesperson for this is what life was like in South Africa for everybody. And so yeah. I, I get your ex's point, but mm-hmm. unfortunately he has to live with the fact that he's going to have to tell people Trevor is just one voice. Mm-hmm. There are other voices. Yeah. Because he is the symbol now, you know, mm-hmm. you think South Africa, you now think Nelson Mandela, mm-hmm. Trevor Noah. Exactly, yeah. And that's a burden to mm-hmm. bear for him. Whew, mm-hmm. um, but he's a he's a good representative, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> I look forward to Isaiah reading that book because I heard that Trevor Noah made it into a, a little bit like a adolescent version too, um, which also oh, became a yes. bestseller. Yeah. Yes, I haven't read that, so, but I heard that, yeah. So, yeah, whenever Isaiah is like a preteen or something, I definitely want him to read it. I think it's just a really good book about just a boy, like anywhere you know and right. and then it's a story of a boy growing up it's just that the the context is very unique right yeah the crazy shit the boys get into is the crazy shit the boys get yeah, into it doesn't yeah. matter where you're from no. yeah but they mm-hmm. got into they got into some crazy mm-hmm. stuff yeah so uh, let's talk about mexico and what's taking you there okay so well basically when i came back to us and i instantly was like okay i'm not gonna stay here in Mexico I okay so for Americans Mexico is like it's so close you know it's not a big deal but again like growing up in Lithuania in the 90s Mexico was this far away exotic land I will never get to see yeah and and so and I grew up watching telenovelas and stuff it was really big thing in Eastern Europe like you would come back from school and between like 4 p.m to 6 p.m the three channels that we had all of them would be showing South American Central American soap operas so you know and, and that's like the time after school before your mom gets home so that's all you do is like watch soap operas you know (laughs) yeah and I just uh I always thought like Mexico was so unique and interesting and I wanted to go there and I would try to learn Spanish because it was dubbed in Lithuanian so I could hear the Spanish in the background and yeah and so 
again, one of those serendipity things, I came back and I was like, you know, Mexico would be really good to move to because I was like, it wouldn't be that far. Like the first flight with him would be fairly short. You know, it's not like I'm taking him to like Japan, you know, his grandparents could come visit easily. We could fly back in case something happens. And I mean, I always wanted to go to Mexico. I wanted to improve my Spanish and all these different things. And my, this couple I met in Hanoi, they ended up moving to Mexico, to Merida in Mexico. And um, I like their pictures. They had like good reviews, I guess. Like, you know, they were enjoying it. You know, they, the guy complained about Hanoi a lot. And I was like, well, he, I thought that he was one of those Americans that cannot fully fit in in the foreign culture because he has that sort of, one thing I learned about Americans living with them outside of United States. I mean, like every, I guess like every culture has like sort of that, I don't know, like sort of like a character trait mm -hmm. that they yep. share. And, and you can't see it when you're there, but like once you're like, uh, when they're taken out of that context and they're just carrying themselves as like British or Americans or Irish. And there's this one common thing that kind of comes up for a lot of people. So for a lot of white American men, what I've noticed a stereotype I could call out. <laughs> it's there for a reason. Yeah, it's this like superior world savior kind of, you know, like having that knowledge of like, well, this, you know, if Vietnam would do things in this way, like they would be so much better off. And like the, in America, we do it this way. In America, we have it better in that way. That's why it works better or whatever. And I saw a lot of that, especially young white American men with liberal arts degrees. Mm. It was this savior complex sort of. And it was kind of annoying because you would be like, you are here for a year max. Like Vietnamese people have been doing this for thousands of years. There's a reason why the way things are you know, are done the way things are done. And and actually, one of the reasons why I like Southeast Asia is how fast it grows and changes. So, you know, just the cultural, like I could see cultural shifts while I was there for two and a half years. But yeah, but for them, there was so much of that. It would be like, well, if this company would do this and this, and we're like, well, there's Vietnamese laws, there's culture, there's all these different things. You can't just come in with your American perspective and try to like change how this business is run in Vietnamese context, you know? But anyway, so he was one of those guys and I thought that he won't be able to function in a different culture like he has that that uh savior kind of complex but they're thriving in mexico but but they love it so i was just kind of like okay merida mexico that looks nice that sounds nice you know it's like it's uh, you know i always kind of wanted to go to yucatan peninsula because of the colors and like for me it's just like embroidered dresses flowers in hair you know kind of that part of mexico that i'm very attracted to and then I, when I was looking for my single mom groups, I ended up in this one Facebook group, Single Moms Do Travel, and one day somebody posted, you know, one, one mom posted, she's like, okay, like, I'm moving to Merida, Mexico, like, and she was looking for, I don't know, maybe like a real estate agent, or it was a really specific question, and there was so many answers under her post. And I kind of posted, you know, I was like, hey, like, I'm not moving there yet, but I'm planning perhaps, I'm, like, I want to go to Mexico and I'm thinking about Merida. Turns out 
huge single mom expat community, very kid-friendly city, safe and clean, like very affordable, like it's a little bit more expensive than the rest of Mexico from what I understand. And it was just one of those assurances which is like, well, I guess we're going to Merida, you know, because it's not like I'm going to have single mom expats with children who run their businesses online. And it's it's a huge community. Like I've seen, you know, Thanksgiving pictures where it's like 50 people in the picture and their families with children. And yeah, so I was like, well, that's just the universe's way of showing me that I need to go to Merida, Mexico. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> So, especially with COVID, what's the game plan? Oh, geez. I hope that we're allowed to go. I mean, hopefully next year, American skin, like the American passport will mean something. Will mean something. Yeah. And I mean, we just need to get out, you know. (laughs) It's funny because I want to go to the other side of that tremendous, beautiful wall. Like, are they going to let us in? (laughs) It's funny how tables have turned. Yeah, but I'm hoping it will be okay. You know, things work out for me all the time. You know, I just have to keep, I'm moving to Mexico next fall. Like, just keep saying that to myself and to others. And I believe that whatever needs to work out, it will work out. So 2021 mm-hmm. autumn is the plan. Yeah, so next year, like okay. in a year. Yeah, which seems like so quick. When I came up with that plan was like when Isaiah was born. So that's like a year and a half ago. And it seems like, oh, two and a half years. Like I have so much time to plan this. And now I'm like, whoa, next year this time I might be in Mexico, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to see you as much as possible. You need to <laughs> meet Isaiah too. I know, mm-hmm. I know. He's amazing. Like he's, I mean, I'm his mom, but he's basically the most beautiful, the coolest, smartest boy ever. <laughs> Just an excellent little soul. He is. Everyone loves him. Like he, people are so attracted to him. That's why I think he's, he's something special. He's like the new, I don't know, Nelson Mandela, Barack Obama, something. He he's... will do something big. You oh, know? that was the actual book I was going to recommend. Have you read any of... Obama's books like Dreams of My Father. Yes, I read Dreams from My Father when he was running for president originally. Yeah, I love that book. And actually, Isaiah has a like a kids book about Barack Obama. And oh my god, I cried. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a like a kids book that my friend gave to him, and who I cry every time I read that book. And I mean, I can read it in fifteen minutes because it's for kids. But Yeah. yeah like rivers of tears because kind of uh also just having that peek into a you know mixed child's perspective like for example i did not think about the fact that my son doesn't look like either side of his family Mm. like i just did not think about it i was like he does not look like us and he does not look like his dad's family you know and and in that barack obama's book was kind of talking how he didn't know where he belongs as a young man and as a boy you know and then he realized that he was the bridge yes. to bring it together. And I was like, oh, my God, like, Isaiah, you're the bridge. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So anything else that you think that we should talk about as in a, you know, important life lesson thing that you saw coming to you, happening to you, whatever, you know, at the, at the time or in retrospect? Of- One thing that I want to tell the people tell the people doesn't feel weird saying that i want to tell the people i want to tell the people is that you know a lot of people complain about 2020 but i see it as a really positive opportunity 
again, with that whole like feeling uncomfortable, you know, it completely knocked everybody off their hamster wheels, you know, off just like doing the the thing every day, day in, day out. This is the way it is. This is how we do things. And right now there's no normal. Nobody knows what's going on. Like, you know, when I came, pulled up to see you, I was like, can I hug you? Should I wear a mask? Like, what's going to happen? We talked about how grocery stores are, are different now. And, you know, can I move to Mexico because maybe the passport won't work? So it's just like up is left and black is purple. Like, there's no normal anymore. So I see it as being an optimist. <laughs> I see it as this incredible window open right now to make up a whole new world and it takes everybody making those choices to like not strive to go back to normal whatever that look like but to kind of look inside yourself and be like well how do I want to make that new normal like what what is my part to play in creating this new world because right now everything is weird and we don't know what's going on we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow so use that opportunity to build something new like in your life in your family in your career in your community like in your country wherever you are like whatever you play a part you know really go with your values with your gut you know instead of keep thinking like that's just the way it is because that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it's exciting. It's super exciting. And be uncomfortable. And and yet people are afraid because they don't, like you said, they don't want to feel like they don't know what's going on yeah. and that they don't know what's going to happen. I think the hardest thing for most people, even if they haven't been able to label it, vocalize it, whatever, is that they don't want to feel like whatever they're doing is for nothing. Mm -hmm. Like, since I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, if I do this thing, it could be for nothing. It could mean nothing. Mm -hmm. But you don't know. You can't assume that it's going to be life-changing and you can't assume that it's for nothing. It's somewhere in between that we don't know. Yeah. So we don't know anything. And I think you're right. Learning to live differently mm -hmm. is a huge opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it frightens, it frightens people. But you can be scared and do it anyway, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, things are scary sometimes. And you can be aware of that fear and be like, I see you. Like, you know, if you think, who told me this story? How they met a woman, I don't know, like, doing those, like, pilgrimage things in Spain. I forget. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I don't remember the exact situation, but there was a German woman and they talked about fear. And then this woman told her that she sees fear as this little girl, like in her life, you know, and she's like, oh my God, oh my God, oh, I can't do this. And you'd be like, I hear you. I see you. I'm going to hold your hand and we're just going to keep going, you know, so you don't have to not feel fear. Like even, you know, doing this podcast, like I was a little bit afraid. I was like, what if I'm going to say too much? What if I'm going to say too little? What if it's going to be boring? And yeah, and like, what if I'm going to start crying, which I almost did. And it <laughs> But then I, I could have said no to you, you know, because I was scared, but I still said yes. And I'm so glad I did it. And, you know, moving to America was scary. Moving to Vietnam was scary. Having this baby was scary. Moving to Mexico is scary, but it doesn't mean that it has to stop you, you know, and you like... If you want to go bungee jumping, you don't wait until you're not scared anymore. You right. just go bungee jump 
like while you're scared you're like I see you fear but I'm gonna do this thing because it's gonna be really fun you know (laughs) when you were saying that I was thinking the same thing I'm thinking Mm -hmm. there are people who love horror movies there are people who love roller coasters Mm -hmm. there are people who love you know skydiving those people are doing it even though they're afraid of it Mm -hmm. or at least that they started off maybe they're not anymore you know just just, don't be afraid to feel they're doing because it's fun yeah yeah so I think that's a good ending place. Yeah. Yeah. And this was fun. And I am so glad that Tony Blank brought you into my life. <laughs> Tony Blank brought us into the same room. Like we still made the connection. Exactly. Like you asked me a question and then I responded and I could have been like, no, I don't know any book clubs. Bye lady. You know, yeah. but and I took a chance of saying like, hey, why don't we start one? You yeah. know? And I appreciate that, that mm-hmm. attitude. Um, I've, I've told many people this, but. I think only once on the podcast that, you know, the book group that I have now that's here in Conifer, which is weird because now it's everywhere because uh, of COVID. But when I moved up here and I went to the library and same thing, hey, do we have any book groups for this library? And they said, no, they're all over and over in Evergreen. I was like, fuck that. I'm not going to Evergreen. We're going to start <laughs> one here. Yeah. Why? Why just say, okay, I'll go there. Or, okay, there's nothing. I'll just live my life. No. Yeah. Don't live like that. Don't live like that. Exactly. Yeah. Like, make opportunities for yourself and take chances. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I like you. That's why I like you, too. Yay. (laughs) All right. We are done, then. Uh Uh-huh. Do-do-do. Bye, everybody. (laughs)